Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Welcome to All the Wiser. I'm Kimmy Culp. All the Wiser is a one-for-one podcast. For every inspiring interview you hear, we donate $2,000 to charities around the world. I believe in the power of storytelling to inspire us all to think differently about the world around us. So I've combed the country for some of the most jaw-dropping stories you have ever heard. People who have been to the brink and back, stories of survival against all odds, and whose lives have been changed in unthinkable ways. Hello and welcome to All the Wiser. We especially want to give a big Warm welcome to all of our new guests who discovered us after the show was featured on Apple Podcast Be a Better You 2020. Our intention has always been to connect great stories with great people, and we are incredibly excited to be meeting you and having you be a part of this journey. We would love to hear from you. Let us know what you think of the show or if you have any ideas for all the wiser guests. You can reach us at hello at allthewiserpodcast.com. Now on to today's interview with beloved tennis player, Marty Fish. Marty was ranked as the number one tennis player in America and number seven in the world. Imagine, if you will, training your entire life for the biggest moment of your career in front of millions of people. With 25,000 people in the stadium at the U.S. Open, Having an anxiety attack that is so bad, you walk out of the locker room, get back in your car, and withdraw from the match. This is exactly what happened to today's guest. The following three months, Marty was having attacks every 10 to 15 minutes. He could not leave his house, be left alone, or sleep in a room by himself. The number one tennis player in the country had simply vanished. As he says, this is not a sports story, this is a life story. Here's today's interview with Marty Fish. Marty, welcome to All the Wiser. Thank you. How would you introduce yourself? Uh, That's a good question, that's right off the top. Um, Marty Fish, I'm from Minnesota. Tons of Minnesota roots in my blood. Uh, my dad is a teaching pro. He teaches tennis. Um, so that's uh, kind of where the tennis all ties in. But um, I grew up in Florida and then um, uh, met my wife in 2006. And here we are in LA, retired tennis player, a former tennis player, and um, happy uh, dad um, of two really fun kids. Um, and uh and uh, still 37 years old and not really sure what to do with the rest of my life, but um, the first 37 years have gone pretty good. Awesome. Well, I'm happy you're in LA and we can have this <laughs> conversation in person. Um, you spoke to it a little bit, but what was 
the backdrop of your childhood? Um, sports, really, to be honest. Uh, my dad, um, my dad is like the biggest tennis fan I've ever come across. Even before I was born, he would go to the U.S. Open as a fan um, to watch. So for him to, you know, fast forward 25 years and have his son playing in the quarterfinals of the U.S. Open on his birthday, uh, kind of exciting to, um, you know, to be able to live those sort of dreams that he probably had as well. Um, sports have been um, my life and focus since I can remember. Um wasn't really school, um, and uh, I jumped into tennis pretty seriously when I was oh, tennis specifically when I was fifteen, and uh, moved away from home and never really looked back from there. Um, that was when I was sophomore in high school. I turned pro after my junior year of high school, so I didn't I didn't even go to school my my senior year of high school. Um, I went to uh, there's a tour um, like a junior circuit, just like the professional circuit that you can play on. And so I traveled the world, and I was in Thailand or Manila in the Philippines or um, you know in Belgium playing or Paris or London. We had coaches, but we were kind of on the you know on our own trying to fend for ourselves too at 17, 16, 17 years old. And I know you started playing. At the age of two, mm-hmm. I read that there was actually video on the local news of you hitting tennis balls. Mm-hmm. Is that correct? It is correct. Uh, I was actually technically three. I had just turned three like the day before. I could barely stand, but I could hit a tennis ball over the net, you know, or hit it 30 feet. Um, and uh, and so they ran like a story on it and said I was the number one two-year-old in the world. So I was number one <laughs> at one stage of my life in the world in tennis. It's just, it was at two years old. That's amazing. I read it and just the visual. I hope you still have access to that. Oh yeah, we've got it. So your life is defined by sports starting as early as two. You said 16, leaving high school to become a professional athlete. The travel, you know, you spoke to that piece of it. What does a day look like? I mean, how many hours are you playing? Are you training? Yeah, we had to practice and train all, you know, all hours of the day, really. I mean, we'd probably, um, my day would consist of, I'd get up at five and I'd go and practice from like 5.30 to 6.30, shower, um, go to school at seven and then, you know, go to school for, I don't know, five hours or so, maybe till noon or something, have lunch and then go train for another like three hours, um, on the court every day. So what is the arc of your professional career from leaving high school to becoming, you know, an Olympian and, and competing at the highest level of the game early on. Um, so I turned pro when I was 17 and moved, you know, moved solely out to, to Tampa and started training and took, um, it took quite a while to be honest. Um, and then 2003 was kind of my first, um, first year I went down to Australia and uh, beat, um, beat a guy who was in the top three or four in the world, um, for kind of the first time in a big event, big win, made the third round there. And then I won my first event that year and ended up actually finishing the year in the top 20 when I was 21 years old. Um, Andy Roddick, who lived with when we were 16, finished the year number one. So we were kind of coming up together. He obviously had um, uh, much better success at the time, but it was close. I mean, it, you know, he had just won a Grand Slam and I wasn't close to that really. But I guess what happened was I didn't understand 
truly what it took to be as good as you could be. Like to truly understand the work ethic and the dedication and discipline it took to get everything out of yourself, all the tools and gifts that you were given um, physically and then and then your work ethic wise. I thought I was working hard enough. Um, clearly I wasn't because I wasn't like a slacker. I wasn't like lazy. I just didn't understand how much it took, um, what it took. Um, so my career from there went kind of as, as a roller coaster. So I would have one great event and then have four bad events and then get injured because I was kind of out of shape or, um, and I never really got the, um, the fitness side of it. I never really dug into it, but I had a, a knee cartilage issue on my knee because I was a little too heavy. I wasn't like heavy, like just walking around, you'd look like a, you know, as a 26 year old kid, you would, you wouldn't say, Oh, he's too, you know, too heavy, walking around, but as a professional athlete and a professional tennis player specifically, um, I was too heavy. So I went from eating whatever I wanted, whenever I wanted, cause I knew I was going to burn a lot of calories cause I played professional tennis to, um, to, uh, ca- basically calorie counting <laughs> every, you know, guesstimating what I would burn, trying to stay under to lose the weight. Um, and I wanted to lose like between 12 and 15 pounds. I thought that'd be like a really good thing. Um, and I went down to Sydney in Australia it was my first tournament and I had lost 32 pounds. Um, so I went from, uh, 213, 215 pounds to 173 pounds. Um, and I felt like a brand new person. Like I felt, um, no longer was my knee hurting, no longer was my body hurting. Um, I didn't have the weight to carry it around. Um, I could run faster. I can run longer. I could, and, and then in turn I could train longer. So, uh, so it, it changed my life. So you're in the best shape of your life. Mm -hmm. Um, it's changing your tennis game. What happens next? Uh, so I dropped all the way to 350 in the world. Um, I started the year in Australia and, um, everything was on the court was different. Um, I could run further, faster, longer. Um, I felt like, I felt like the sacrifices that I was making and the work that I was putting in was better than anyone in the world. And that gave me a ton of confidence as well, knowing that I felt like there was nothing else that I can do to put myself in the best position to win, to succeed. And I started climbing, my ranking started getting higher, started getting to 60 in the world and doing things, you know, just started doing things I'd never done before. So I ended up, um, 2010 finishing the year, uh, higher than I'd ever been. I finished 15 in the world. So you go during this time period from 350th in the world Mm -hmm. to eventually you're one of the top 10 players in the world. And... Today we're here to talk about not only your tennis career, but about your journey with mental health. Mm -hmm. At what point do you remember the onset of struggling with your mental health? Yeah. Um, So, so from that, you know, from that 2010 and the success that I had in 2010, finishing that year, um, I started sort of developing this thought of nothing was ever like never be satisfied. And there's a fine line between never being satisfied and just continuing to try to get as good as you can get. My never being satisfied, 
and really step back and, and say, you're doing great. You know, I was never able to do that. Um, I didn't allow myself to do it because I was too focused on getting to as high as I could get. I remember training that off season and, and like nothing was like it, um, if I, if my, if my trainer would say do 10 sprints, like I would get upset at him and say, why aren't we doing 11 or doing 12? And like, just that's the mindset that I developed, um, which got me that summer, um, to sort of shorten that part that summer in 2011 to seven in the world, which is as high as I got. But when I got there, I remember in Cincinnati, which is my favorite tournament of the year, one of my favorite tournaments of the year. And I looked around the locker room and I was like, Mm, there's six guys in here that are better than me. It's not good enough. Let's keep going. So you could imagine like the, uh, every thought that I had, um, every decision that I made during that time that added up to three years was around tennis. Should I go to a movie tonight? My wife wants to go to a movie. It's eight o'clock movie. That's previews. That's, uh, it's two hour movie. So then ten I'm going to get out of there and I'm not going to get to bed till 1130. No, can't go. Not going to do it because I got to practice the next day or I have something the next day. No, not can't do it. So I would turn everything down like that. So it was a real sacrifice for obviously me, but, but my wife as well. Um, and, and, uh, so I built up sort of this mindset of like, nothing was good enough. Um, and my expectations went from, I had all the pressure as I was, now I was the rank, number one ranked American in the world. It's all really new. And I remember like the, the media and stuff was really different. You know, I'd always been fr- very friendly um, with them and, and they had, you know, never really had very many bad things to say about me or really good things. They were just, you know, I wasn't the top guy, so they didn't really worry about me too much. And, um, I remember, uh, 2012 March in Miami, I made the quarterfinals and I lost in the quarterfinals. I lost, I lost to a good player and I came off the court and our Davis cup captain was, um, Patrick McEnroe at the time. And he was, um, an ESPN commentator as well. And they had a TV in the locker room. And as I walked from the stadium, uh, out, into the locker room and the sound was up and, and it was, um, uh, something like a, you know, really pathetic performance from fish today, you know, kind of thing. And here's my Davis cup captain saying this and, um, my friend and, um, I just, I'd never heard anything like that. Like maybe people were saying that, but it, I didn't hear it. It was kind of behind my back. So I, so I, you know, so I, I walk in, I hear that and I, um, you know, kind of, I kind of go, Hmm, that feels like a lot of pressure. You know, I just, I feel like I did pretty well in this tournament. That was a fairly good result. And I would have been really happy with it. My previous career, um, pre 2009 would have loved that tournament. Um, so, uh, uh, fast forward to that night, um, for a couple friends and I went out to, um, went out to a basketball game and then got, got back pretty late. And I woke up in the middle of the night with a heart rate of like what I felt was incredibly high, um, 200 and over 200 beats per minute 
And the reason why I know how high it was because I always trained with a heart rate monitor and my heart was going like crazy and I, I couldn't stop it. And I was really good at like slowing down my heart rate because I do, did it in practice like every day. And um, uh, I couldn't stop it. So my trainer was there. My wife wasn't with me. She was back here in LA. Um, my heart rate is going way too fast. Like I can't feel like I'm going to die. I feel like I'm going to die. I really did. Like I thought I was like, I can't stop. So I get in the, we call the ambulance and go through the, uh, the, the lobby of the hotel. So, you know, you're freaking out and you have a panic attack as well. And, um, get to the hospital and they, you know, clear me and everything's fine. I calm down and, um, and so I just kind of kept going. I made the fourth round of Wimbledon, like still winning matches, but I'm having these like kind of hard to describe, like exactly the thoughts, but but um, uncomfortable. Intrusive be, thoughts. Yeah, kind of a really uncomfortable thoughts where I'm like, not that I'm going to like harm myself by any means, but I just, I feel really bad. Um, I was having those types of thoughts like every sort of hour at this time, except on the tennis court. So I had so much to think about and so much to deal with on the court that it never really crept up. The fears and the intrusive thoughts are mounting. Mm-hmm. Are there specific fears and how quickly is this escalating? So uh, Toronto is maybe three weeks out from the U.S. Open, which is the kind of the culmination of the summer and the one you want to do best at. Um and the one everyone's kind of gearing up for, for, for the entire year, really. Um, I'm okay still having the same type of things. Asking friends around and stuff, hey, have you ever felt like, the, you know, kind of my trainer? Um, not a ton of people, but close people. Um, my wife, um, Christian, my physio was basically like my confidant as well. Uh, and I get to the U.S. Open and I play a couple matches and I get into the third round. Randomly, it was sort of a, a emotional match, like, uh, you know, mentally exhausting type of match. And um, I sit down on the chair and I look over at the clock and the clock says like, you know, 1245 or something like that. So it's in the middle and I'm playing a, a night match and on Arthur Ashe Stadium, which is, you know, again, like all the, you know, you work so hard to get to this point to play a match like that. And I sit down and I look at the clock and I'm like, oh, I'm going to have that feeling. And boom, it hit me for the first time on the tennis court. That was my only place that I could go um, and really feel safe in that, in that space mentally. Um, and it was gone just like that. Um, I have no idea how or what happened, but I'm pretty sure I won the next three games. Um, did an interview on the court um, uh, and then rushed off the court. And by this time, it's, you know, one one fifteen in the morning. And by this time, the U.S. Open, I'm having every 10 minutes. Like, I, I can't get my mind out of it um, away from the court. And again, this is the first time that it hit me on the court. So I rushed off the court. I run in. I beg the doctors to, to stay, hook me up to the EKG so I could calm down because I know if you can just, hook me up. I can lay down and I know that like my heart's fine, then maybe I'll calm down. Um, and that was kind of the, the moment where I knew I was really in trouble. Um, because I didn't have anywhere that wasn't safe. 
And how would you explain it to people who can't, who haven't been there, who yeah. don't understand what anxiety and panic feels like? What are you experiencing? The panic disorder feels is fairly simple to tell. It's incredibly uncomfortable, but that's where you know your heart will race and you, um, you know, you're panicking about something. I would get anxiety attacks where like my body would get really warm and I would just, I could, I would, all I wanted to do was kind of curl up into a ball. Anxiety is harder to uh, articulate or verbalize than kind of a, a panic thing. Um, Did you feel like you wanted to crawl out of your skin? I wanted to go, crawl into a little ball and like not have anyone talk to me or see me or anything. Cause it was like, I felt really, really vulnerable. And again, like I didn't know, and I, I'm still haven't seen a doctor. So I haven't really, I'm not really understanding like what this is. And so you say you don't want to be seen. You're at the U S open. How many people are watching <laughs> you? Yeah. Um, uh, so, so that's the problem is that the next day, every Grand Slam, you have a day off in between if it doesn't rain or something. So we had a day off that day I had off, um, and I'm Googling, I'm on YouTube, Googling anxiety disorder, anxiety attacks, panic attacks. I have no idea what these are. Um, the next day I'm supposed to play Roger Federer on my dad's birthday on Arthur Ashe stadium on, um, basically the match that I worked so hard and sacrificed so much to get to, that was the one that was ultimately the one that um, I felt most uncomfortable on, which was ironic because that was where I wanted to get. I wanted to get to deep into a Grand Slam against the best player in the world on the biggest stage. Um, and that was Labor Day, um, on CBS sports with the big guys calling the matches match and 15,000, you know, I guess uh, Arthur Ashe stadium is 22,000 people. So 22,000 people there, just two guys, not a whole team watching, not a basketball team or anything like that. As big as Staples center, but just two guys. Um, and I remember we're waiting for our car, uh, transportation to come get us, take me out to the courts. And I'm just full anxiety attack. I mean, I just, I can't, I can't stop. Like I'm just, I'm sitting on the, the stairs outside the, um, the hotel and, and, uh, and sort of thinking about how am I going to do this? Like, how am I going to get out there? How am I going to perform, perform at, at a high level? How am I not going to have these thoughts on the court, which would be really bad? Um, and we get in the car and I just start I just completely break down. Uh, it's just Christian, my physio, my wife, the driver, and I. And I'm thinking, you know, I'm just kind of, you know, so at this point I'm bawling, crying. Like I can't help it. I'm in, I, I, don't, I don't know how I've gotten to this point. I don't know what I've done to get to this point, but I'm in this living hell. Um, and my wife kind of turns to me and she goes, I never thought of this ever. And she goes, you don't have to play. I'm like, what are you talking about? Of course I have to play. Like, what do you mean? I have to play. Got to play. You know, this is like, this is the match that I dream about. And she's like, you, just, you don't have to play. So what's the worst, you know? 
never would have crossed. If she wasn't there telling me that, I don't know what would have happened. I would have gone out there, I'm sure. Um, And immediately after she said that, like twice, I got like this like weight was like lifted off of me. And I was like, you're right. I don't have to play, which is unfathomable. I didn't have an injury. You know, I wasn't limping. I wasn't sick. Um, um, I, you know, I was in tip top shape. I was in incredible shape um, physically and just mentally I was in a black hole. And uh, so I went to the courts driving that day um, and pulled out, pulled out of the match. We went, uh, I told him, I remember telling my coach and he was like, you know, he kind of knew like that something, you know, that I wasn't feeling well, but he was kind of like, you know, and obviously very um, supportive, but, but like, really? (laughs) I'm like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to play. I can't play. I'm going to pull out. I'm going to go home. How did you explain? What did you say? Um, So I, I, I said, I can't, I can't play. Um, So immediately for people who don't understand what, what goes on, um, behind the scenes for something like that. Okay. So I need to do a press conference to announce that I'm pulling out of the match and, um, I need to do an interview with ESPN, um, who's waiting outside the locker room, wondering what's going on. Um, so there were tons of questions, obviously. And, uh, I'd say, I think I remember, I, I think I said something like an, my knee hurts and I said, I'm not doing a press conference cause they can't make you do one. Um, and I just put a hat on and put it real low and put a hoodie over and just walked out and left. We went back to the hotel. We packed up. We, I wanted to get home as quick as I could because I wanted to see a doctor as quick as I could. We jumped on a plane and I haven't, um, I've flown, you know, first class every time since 2002, literally every time. Um, there were no seats on this plane. It was the only plane I didn't care. I just wanted to get home. So, my wife got me, got us take, you know, seats in economy on the plane and she's okay, like, let's go. And we got on the plane and a guy in front of me, I've got my hat on and like a guy in front of me looks over the seat and goes, well, how come you didn't play today? So, uh, I start like, again, boom, anxiety attack. Like, oh man, how does he know me? And at that moment, I hear them, you know, how they kind of hear them close the door on the plane and it kind of like seals, they close it. And I went, I can't do this. I got to get off the plane. I have to get off the plane. And by this time, like I'm telling, and by this time, um, my wife and thank, again, thank God that she's there. Um, and, uh, she pops up after realizing, Hey, I, we can't go on this flight. And she goes, we have a medical emergency. We have to get off the plane. And we're, we're away from the gate. So we have to pull back to the gate. The gate's got to come. Um, and what's happening in your mind and body at this uh, point? At this point, I'm like, I have to get off this plane. Um, can't go home. Got to get off the plane right now. Um, I need fresh air. I need something. I can't, I can't, I can't do this. Um, so, you know, we, they go back to the gate. It's like really embarrassing because we're like standing up. And, um, I get outside and, you know, start crying again on the ground, basically like around at JFK where everyone's smoking outside. And I'm like on the ground, like taking deep breaths and like, you know, I can't breathe basically. 
we ended up hiring uh, just renting a plane to get home um like four days later it took it took four days just to get gather the kind of the courage up to be able to take one of those planes so we got home and i got to see got to see a um got to see a doctor for the first time and i started seeing the doctor um once every um you know once a day probably five days a week um initially just to kind of diagnose me and kind of get me on the right path start the medication i don't know where i'd be without the medication at this point so over the course of the next kind of two months three months i didn't leave my house other than to go to the doctor didn't leave one time um the first thing that i did was go to a movie with my wife and we had to sit in like the first first seat next to the exit I had to have a Xanax in my pocket just in case, knowing that I wasn't going to take it, but it was there just in case. Um, and that was kind of starting the healing process of of being able to go out. And during those three months, you're only leaving the house to see your psychiatrist or mm-hmm. psychologist. What's happening at home? I didn't have any worries or anything to worry about. We had a house and I had a wife and... I just, I needed my life back. I needed, um, I needed, um, to be able to go play golf with my friends, which I missed. Um, something as simple as going to dinner with friends. Um, uh, and then it, it resorted, it resorted to, um, something like having a beer with my buddies after playing golf. You know, all this was a process, just a healing process was, How would I feel after one beer or half a beer or half a glass of wine, something like that? How would I feel after a full glass of wine, you know, kind of thing to where um, something as small as, you know, eating sugar or uh, having ice cream, how would that affect my heart, caffeine, stuff like that? Because I love coffee. So like, how's that going to work? At the time, I was sleeping a lot with Ambien. How am I going to sleep without ambience? I got to stop taking that. That stuff's, you know, it's not going to be good for me. And I read you couldn't sleep alone in a room. Is that correct? Yeah. So even while I was playing, I had to get an adjoining room with my trainer. It turned out to be pretty important that um, someone was kind of with me at all times. Uh, um, And you go back and I think back a lot about it, obviously, because now it's a part of my life forever. Um, and it's sort of a daily, this is seven years ago now when it was rock bottom. Um, and you have your good days and your bad days, but I think about it every day. Um, I take medication every day. Um, it's a part of my life. Um, and it will always be a part of my story of my tennis career and my, and the story of my life. The most important thing was for me having my wife there, having my trainer there who was also my friend, um, my parents, um, her parents around to be able to have someone there at all times. My dad came for weeks on end um, to watch football games with me. Um, So he flew out to like, you know, for weeks um, to just have somebody, have a body with me because my wife couldn't do it all. You know, like she has her own life too. Um, She was a lawyer and she was working when we met and, um, um, so she um, put her life on hold for me. Um, but it was hard because every day, every minute of every day, she couldn't go to 
the gas station um, without me going, you can't, you can't leave. So someone had to be there. So then her father would come or something like, you know, and so it was a, the support system was massive um, because I was really in a really bad place. And if I didn't have a support system, I'm not sure uh, I'd still be here um, or I'm not sure what would have happened. Were you having suicidal thoughts? No, I wasn't, but I, but um not to harm myself, but I was afraid that if I went further, that maybe I would harm someone else or harm myself. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't like I'm thinking about doing this kind of thing, but it was more of if I didn't have this support system, I wonder where I'd be. A fear of what if, how far is this going to go? Yeah. 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 What was, what was the diagnosis? Uh, severe anxiety disorder, period. Um, and uh, again, like the support system and and then the, the medication. Like I know some people are against um, taking medicine for it or for mental health issues. Uh, I took Lexapro. It's basically just a chemical imbalance in your brain and it puts serotonin back in your brain and, and that's what Lexapro does. And um, I think it'll, um, I think it'll, be a part of my life at least for the foreseeable future for sure but but I don't know where I'd be without that kind of that that medicine to to at least get me to a point where I felt comfortable leaving my house or or having normal having a normal day at what point do you decide that you are going to openly share because you're an incredibly high profile athlete why um why you've been off the court and what's happening with you? Yeah. Um, it's a great question because there was no right or wrong time. Um, that was difficult to, um, coming out with it. Um, two things. Uh, one, I felt, I felt much better when I talked about it. Like when I actually verbalized how I felt, I felt better. Um, just, period. So I had this incredibly incredible career and um, I was nowhere near the end of it. Um, it just was taken away from me. Um, so that, you know, so it, it was helpful to just talk about it. It felt, made me feel better. And then secondly, and maybe most importantly, um, I loved sports, loved sports. And I never had anyone to look at and go, oh, there's a success story in sports that has to do with mental health where um, where they not only beat it, but got back to the arena again and thrived. And I wanted to be that success story. I wanted to be that role model for people as I started coming out with my story. Um, I learned that tens of millions of people in America deal with it on a daily basis. Um, and it was a lot more prevalent than I knew of, um, and that I knew was going on. So I knew that there were people out there that were just like me. I knew there were probably people that liked sports and maybe even were fans of mine that, um, were dealing with mental health issues. And I wanted to be a success story. I wanted to be a role model. I wanted to show them that, that I can, 
be as deep as it gets with mental, with some bad, bad, bad mental health issues and not only come out of it, but come out of it successfully. How did it feel the first time you saw it in print or heard yourself Mm -hmm. speaking openly about it? Um, Yeah. So I, I basically stopped playing for at least six months. I started training. I started practicing again, maybe four months out, you know, it took a while just again, just to leave my house. I missed, um, doing what I did best, um, which was playing tennis. Um, so I tried to get back into shape. I started exercising, started sweating. That was a big thing. Like just sweating for the first time, getting my heart rate up and then down for the first time I did like, it must've been like just a walk on the treadmill and then a jog and then a light jog and, you know, up until I could start training again. And I thought, okay, well, let's, uh, let's try to play. So I tried to play. Um, um, and then ultimately I wanted to get back to the U.S. Open. So I wanted to get back and play, um, play there again. Um, I didn't know how many times or what, but I wanted to play there again. Um, and that was, you know, sort of when I started, uh, started um, training and, and coming back and sort of announcing my schedule you know, the questions will come, well, where were you? And so I started talking about it. Um, just very casually though, nothing like, uh, I would need to set out a, you know, send out a statement it needs to say this. And then I need to, these are my talking points. It wasn't like that. It was just like, if you have a question, I'll talk to you about it. Cause that's what made me feel most comfortable. So 2013, I went back in the summer and had it, it, it happened again on the court. Um, and when that, when that happened again on the court, I felt great away from the court. So was, then it was like, okay, well, why am I putting myself through this living hell? Um, I think I'm done. I must be done. Um, yeah, it wasn't until my last kind of tournament where I really wanted to, uh, where, where we were kind of calculated with how we wanted to come out with a real story, like the full story. Apart from that, it was always just people asking. I got um, tons of calls from friends, players, players that if anyone knows anything about tennis, players that they've heard of for sure, men and women um, uh, that were on tour that were struggling with the same thing, but just hadn't really come out with it and weren't comfortable talking about it. So they talked to me about it. Played a pickup basketball game in Beverly Hills on every Saturday morning. And one guy pulled me aside and said his girlfriend read my article in the Players' Tribune and it made her feel better. And like, so that was those were those kind of um, stories and success stories um, making people feel better were 100% the reason why I wanted to vocalize how I was feeling um, and, and put it down on paper and really show people um, what I did, why it happened, and how I got through it. Which is amazing, and thank you. Thanks. It really is a gift. Where do you think we are today as a country specific to stigma? And I think um, you and I talked about before my sharing my own story mm-hmm. with bipolar, um, that that there's maybe even more of a stigma. We'll see if you agree when it comes to men and mental health. Um, I, I think it's made great improvements in the sports world for sure. And again, like this has come comes back to, you know, where you asked basically the first question of, who am I, you know, deep down? Um, I love 
sports is my life. So like I have a TV in every room in my house and it has to be on sports at all times. I'm the, like a guy and I love sports. And, um, and so I've heard um, multiple people come out, um, big names, uh, Kevin Love, DeMar DeRozan, a um, few basketball players, a few football players that have um, been very vocal about it. So I, I had tons of conversations with people um, like that and saw stories that came out like that. So today, I seven years ago, I never saw that ever. So in that regard, I've seen um, those guys have issues um, and thrive. Look, every everyone's story um, is different. Like your story is different than my story. It wasn't, you know, my, mine wasn't worse than yours and yours wasn't worse than mine. In our own little worlds, it was terrible. And that's all that we can, you know, like I can't say, oh, you had mental health. Well, did you, were you in, were you on the couch for three months? Could you leave your house? No. Okay. Well then mine's tougher. That's not how it works. Mine was harder than yours. Um, everyone's world is rocked by it when they, when they get it. And, um, everyone's is different, but the same, but the most important thing, um, that I see now is I see success stories of people overcoming it, period. Does it surface today? Where are you with your mental health on a day-to-day basis? I'm great. Um, because I choose to be great. I think, um, if I have some sort of episode, which is fairly rare now, um, I know how to deal with it and how I deal with it is I take my mind to my favorite place in the world, which is a place called Roaring Gap, North Carolina, and I'll play the golf course. I'll, t- I'll try, my thought is to try and change the channel on my negative thoughts and turn it to a positive. So I'll get to like the third hole and it'll be gone. I never get to the fourth or the fifth hole. It's amazing. Yeah. I read a quote from you. <laughs> where you said you dream big and you figure out where you fall. Can you explain that? Yeah. Um, So it's being, it's me being comfortable with, um, that's me being comfortable with my career, being able to, when I'm done, put my head on my pillow, knowing that I did everything I could. That is me saying um, at the end of the day, be comfortable with where you finish or where you fall. Just just know that when you're done, you're done. You can't go back. There's no, um, I'm retired. I can't like right now go back and, and play again. Like I, I'm done. Um, so I have to put my head on my pillow every night knowing that I'm comfortable with um, doing something that not everyone gets to do, um, that people dream about doing. And, um, I want to be comfortable knowing that I tried everything that I could to get as good as I could get. Standing where you are today, what would you say to yourself seven years ago? Um, it's going to be okay. Um, you, you will get your life back. That was a huge thing for me getting my, I just, I can't tell you how many times I told my wife, I just want my life back. I just want normalcy back. Um, so all the moments where you're really scared, um, or you're really vulnerable, where you feel like you're alone, um, you're not. And, um, there are people that are going through what you're going through 
in their own world, lots of people. And, um, and also seven years ago as to now, um, hopefully you've made a few people, um, feel better about how they felt or know that eventually they're going to feel better because I came out with my story and, and it was a success story. Thank you, Marty. Thanks. Before we end, I'm going to do a little something called rapid fire. Okay. So I fire off questions. Ooh, okay, good. Tennis balls. <laughs> you answer. Um, favorite childhood cereal? Raisin Bran. Favorite band? It's hard for me not to say Jake Owen because he's my best friend. So I'll say Jake Owen. I also love, I loved growing up, I loved the Dave Matthews Band. I'll say Jake Owen and Dave Matthews Band. Best way to spend a Sunday? Watching football, watching the Vikings win. Top things on your bucket list? Okay. Um, I'd love to go do a safari in South Africa. Favorite quote? Mm. Pressure is a privilege, Billie Jean King. What I want for my kids? Um, I want them to be happy. I want them to be successful. I want to put them in the best position to be successful and let them make their own their own mistakes. I think that's really important. What matters most is? Um, family, friends, kids, wife, um, happiness, um, yeah, sunshine, while we live in LA. <laughs> Not today. <laughs> Not today, but every other day it's pretty good. Um, well, Marty, it was a privilege and an honor, and thank, thank you. you for sharing your thank story. You. It's thank an important for, one. Thank you for having me. All right, that's a wrap. Okay. Good? Yeah, we're good. Today's interview supports the Marty Fish Children's Foundation. He wanted to give back to the community that had given him so much. Today, Marty's foundation has after-school programs in Indian River County in Florida. They now serve 12 schools, providing kids with safe and nurturing places to go after school to be fed, do their homework, or simply play sports together. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation and learned something new about yourself or the world and feel a little bit wiser. Thanks for listening and have a great day. All the Wiser is produced by Erica Gerard at Podkit Productions. Sound engineering is by Matt Sav at Fairfax Village Studios. And our associate producer is Kessie Hollister. Thanks for being a part of the All the Wiser podcast. You can subscribe to the podcast, read the show notes, and get in touch with us at allthewiserpodcast.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at All the Wiser Podcasts. Send us a note. We'd love to hear from you. See you next time. Did you know a 2018 study showed half of prenatal vitamins tested had unacceptable levels of heavy metals? I'm Kat, mother of three and founder of Ritual. When I was four months pregnant, I couldn't find a prenatal I could trust. 
so I created my own. Ours is made traceable, third-party tested for heavy metals, and recently earned the Purity Award from the Clean Label Project. But don't just take my word for it. Get 25% off at virtual.com slash podcast. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.